In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. So here on Notably Disney, you are probably familiar with the wide variety of guests that I have on as they have a connection to, or a background in, or a passion for music and books, songwriters, composers, singers, uh, authors, everyone in between. One angle though I've yet to really explore though is the people who actually cover the artwork for the books. So that is what I am going to help unravel today as I bring on guest Robbie Yo, who's just a fantastic artist. He is someone whose work I have followed for a while. You may already be familiar with his work if you've actually bought books through outlets, including Theme Park Press. And today he talks about his career, his background, in illustration and graphic design, how he's made a whole career out of it. It's quite a fascinating story, and um, a lot of really interesting products have come out of that journey. So let's get into that conversation. Illustrator Rob Yo is a gifted designer whose work for a variety of brands, as illustrated on his website, including Holiday Inn and Mall of America, has led to these creations being spotlighted at an international level. His Disney-inspired work, however, may be of most interest to listeners of Notably Disney. His book cover designs have been featured on many titles, um, some that you've probably read, including uh, recent releases by guests uh, of Notably Disney, including Christopher E. Smith and Aaron Wallace, among others. Robbio Design showcases much of this cool and very reverent artwork uh, many paying homage to extinct attractions, logos, and other things related to the world of Disney. You can even purchase uh, some pieces for your own collection, sporting Rob's artwork on t-shirts, phone designs, or pins, uh, among other types of products. Um, so I'm really glad to bring on Rob as we discuss his artistic roots, career, Disney interests, and various ventures 
So without any further ado, welcome to Notably Disney, Rob. Hi, Brett. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you. Uh, I think as we were discussing a little bit before uh, we started recording, uh, you you, you wear a lot of hats and uh, you fill a really interesting space, I think, in the Disney landscape and that you are uh, an artist, you are a creator, you have, as I mentioned, such a reverence for different aspects of the Disney theme parks, which really comes through in the creations that we can see on your website and what we can purchase. And I'd love for uh, listeners to know a little bit more about your basically your background as it pertains to Disney. Uh, it's a question I ask of a lot of my guests um, in terms of their Disney upbringing. Um, I understand that you started with go uh, going to Disneyland Paris and Walt Disney World growing up, is that right? Yes, that's right. So I think the first family trip we did was to Disneyland Paris in 1994, went over on the Channel Tunnel. And uh, after that, we sort of had regular holidays over to Walt Disney World. So it was definitely a big part of my childhood. And of course, like anyone who goes there, you have sort of your family traditions and the things you do every trip. And I guess, like, as I went on, uh, went from, you know, just enjoying it to sort of being more interested in the behind the scenes. As soon as I learned what Imagineer was, I went out and bought every book I could find with the word Imagineering in. And it's just spiraled since then, basically, into uh, yeah, the uh, maniac I am now about theme parks, themed entertainment design, and all that fun stuff. So you mentioned going to Disneyland Paris in 1994, and if memory serves me right, it, it would have still been referred to as Euro Disneyland back then, is that correct? Uh, yes, I'm not quite sure when they uh, rebranded themselves, but this was still the very early days. Um, so early that all our videos were still on, uh, you know, camcorder, VHS <laughs> tapes. I'm sure that's hidden in my parents' attic somewhere still. So you were basically there right when Space Mountain launched, because that was, what, only a couple of years, maybe 95, 94, 95, after the park opened in 92? It must have been something like that. But uh, yes, I was only little at the time, so I would have been about six I think on our first trip so um but it's, yeah obviously it's had such a uh, profound effect on the trajectory of my life because everything's sort of been built around the I don't know the inspiration and uh the fun I've had visiting theme parks so can you talk a little bit more about that I know you shared that you were really inspired by uh, the theme park design, I, I imagine the architecture as well, considering that Disneyland Paris is often referred to as one of the most aesthetically pleasing uh, Disney parks on a lot of fronts. What about the environment uh, most resonated with you or most appealed to you as an up and coming artist? I think I've, I've always been drawn to themed places, you know, anything that's sort of taking out of the boring real world and then putting you in some kind of adventure so obviously Disneyland Paris was the very 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 high watermark of that and it still is to this day with the amount of you know detail and place making that's gone into every single facet of it I still remember Space Mountain in its original and in my opinion best incarnation when it's still Jules Verne themed and you had the cannon going with the smoke and the rumble and you could see the cars going through and every 
part went together perfectly and I just loved that feeling as a kid of going into each land and it's sort of like teleporting so you're in the wild west you're in the jungle you're in a a pirate's raid you get to have all these different adventures and because the effect was so well done they put so much care and attention into it it really was a complete effect whereas you can go to maybe a lesser park and it's more decorated than themed so you never really buy into it completely because you'll see something that takes you out of it. But I remember before Disneyland Paris, there was a place in my hometown, Torquay, called the Fun Factory, which was kind of like a soft play area you'd see in most places. But I liked that they went to greater lengths to theme it than most other places would. So the little cafe you could go into and get food was all jungle themed. So they had kind of big wooden jungle jeeps you could eat in a bit like the sci-fi uh, dining at uh, MGM Studios and they had tents with uh, medicine bottles and things like that and a play area that was all sort of kind of Indiana Jones themed with like a big foam boulder you could push out the way and treasure and that really excited me when I was a kid that you could you know have an adventure that usually you'd only see in a film or something like that. That's really cool. And it sounds like because of your fascination with parks, and you mentioned how you would try to find books on Imagineering, that you wanted to almost extend the experience. So not necessarily being in a physical place, but uh, imagining that as well. And I understand from the DreamFinders podcast that you would actually sketch your own designs for parks and and even different spaces uh, that could be in a Disney theme park. Is that right? Yes, I basically, whatever I could get my hands on, I'd use to kind of come up with rides. So sometimes it would be made out of old cereal boxes. Uh, sometimes it would be a toy train set. I remember one time I made a Jurassic Park ride out of a train set. And then I had a tape recorder of the Jurassic Park soundtrack and I'd record my own narration over it. So, uh, and then imagine I'm one of these passengers on the train going past plastic dinosaurs and trees and scenes. Uh, I guess it's no different today. I'm just using slightly more sophisticated methods, basically anything I can get my hands on to realize it. So sometimes it could be a sketch, sometimes it could be a 3D blender model, whatever's going to bring it to life best. That's really cool. And actually, it kind of resonates with me, even thinking back to my childhood. Ultimately, I would not uh, end up uh, in a and uh, a creative field along the lines of art and design, but drawing even just uh, basically aerial views of uh, my own versions of Disney theme parks and queue lines for attractions and what would those like. And for you, it was very much in a 3D format as you describe with actual uh, toys and, and materials to really fully immerse yourself in these imagined environments. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And always uh, my favorite thing was go to Staples and uh, get my dad to buy me a giant sheet of card and then start drawing grand plan park maps for these imaginary theme parks. So I think I did uh, a Dark Kingdom because at that time uh, we went on a trip and on the monorail we could see all these cranes and actually what they were building was Animal Kingdom. But the uh, monorail driver said, no, 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 it's going to be a villains themed theme park and that's all he said about that so as soon as we got back home I started sketching what this place would look like on this 
giant sheet of card, um, which is, yeah, always fun. I'm, I'm basically still doing the same thing today. So I'm just an overgrown kid, I think. Oh, that's hilarious. See, and as a kid, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm the only one who who creates these types of imag like <laughs> imaginary worlds. Like I had those huge poster board, like you're mentioning at Staples, I still have some of them. So it sounds like for you, it really translated to being able to get those creative juices flowing at a, at a very young age. Absolutely. And now the fact that I can do it as a commission is part of my job. I just think this is unreal. I mean, I wouldn't tell my clients this, but most of the time I do it for free anyway. And it's just a bonus that I get to uh, pay my mortgage with it. So that's awesome. Let's kind of talk about that, that transition. When did you realize that if there was even a specific moment when you discovered that, wow, I have, I have a gift here as a, as an artist, as a designer. I think it was more that growing up, I was probably known as like the creative kid, you know, for my friends. So especially when I was at school kind of as a teenager, I had a lot of friends who were in bands, which means they'd need a lot of logos, especially because these bands would have a lifespan of about a week before they'd break up, have a fight and then reform into a new group. So they're always needing logos, t-shirts, websites and things like that. So that's probably where I learned a lot of my graphic design skills and doing gig posts as well. And then actually when I went to university, I continued doing that because at the time I didn't even consider doing anything creative professionally. It was just going to be a hobby because obviously when you're a kid, it's hammered into you that art, you can't make money doing that. It's going to be a nice hobby, but no one ever makes money doing that. So I did a degree in international business instead. But all the meantime, I was doing logos, posters, all the same stuff. So it was sort of percolating in the background. And then it was only after I graduated that I was thinking, actually, this is the part I really enjoy. How can I make this a bigger part of my day-to-day -day job? Yeah, I see. So were there any specific tools or mechanisms that you used, Rob, as far as being able to translate th these ideas onto paper, specific software or um, tools as, a, as an artist, as an illustrator? I think it was called, what was it? My bread and butter was, I think it's Microsoft Photo Draw. I think I have to look that up, but it's kind of like Photoshop for beginners. Uh, so I was using that mainly when I was a teenager and that was for every logo, every band poster and things like that. And it was sort of my entree into digital designing. And then I was kind of heartbroken because they discontinued the software at some point, which forced me onto Photoshop, which in hindsight is a good thing because that's the industry standard software. And from that sort of branched off into Illustrator and InDesign and all the other hundred million applications Adobe has nowadays. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it always seems like there's an inordinate uh, number of these different tools. And, and for you, one thing that I, I think really stands out in reviewing your website and your work is just the cleverness and uh, meticulousness that, that goes into each, each design. And, and one specific avenue that really appeals to me are, are signs. I've always been interested in signage and how it kind of captures the mood of an environment and you've been really monumental in basically cr uh, digitally creating signs from the Disney theme parks. Can you talk about how that particular avenue of yours emerged? Uh, that's, 
a really fun and I think really specific kind of project, which I called the Digital Sign Project. I can't remember what my first one was, but it just starts because I have such a great appreciation for the graphic design in Disney theme parks, because not only does it have to function as regular graphic design in the real world does, but it has to tell a story. It has to fit into a certain place, a certain time, it has to you know communicate a mood. And I think that merges with, like, I, I suffer a lot from nostalgia. So that kind of fear that something you love will go away, like in a theme park, which is constantly changing, constantly evolving. So this way, something that could have, you know, vanished from the consciousness as soon as it gets dismantled, it's still alive and kind of preserved. So, and I think I got a very good response from people who discover it and like the fact that there's kind of these crisp recreations of signs that were played such a big role in their childhood and you know these Disney environments. Right so are there were were some of your earlier projects um, related to creating these signs related to extinct attractions or experiences or were they reflective of just favorite you know favorite aspects of the parks for you? It was kind of both because there was a lot of uh Tomorrowland 1994 which was and still is a favorite of mine and the old Disney MGM studios so it was a way of celebrating these designs I liked but also at the time they were slowly going away so it was a way of capturing them and each one is so evocative of childhood holidays you know because you'd see these on your guide maps and your signs so no you know, it makes me happy seeing them again. Yeah, so could you talk about how you actually go about that process? So using any of your uh, signs as examples, is it basically, you know, capturing it via photograph and then trying to, you know, recreate the specific tones and, and designs in the software? Are there other approaches that you take in, in making that a reality? So first of all, it's research. Uh, always try and find the best quality photograph of whatever sign I'm trying to recreate. And in a perfect world, that would be really high resolution, perfectly straight on, um, which makes it a lot easier to work with. Sometimes, or the more obscure or older the uh, sign is, the less availability of images there are. So I'll try and translate that, get the basic shapes out. And then for fonts, sometimes it's a publicly available font. So I'll be able to match that with a bit of uh, trial and error. Other times, if I can't find it, I'll just have to sort of trace it and manipulate it and try and recreate it that way. And then it's just trying to match the effects, whether it's, you know, gradients or illustration or anything like that uh, within the software to make it look exactly right. And actually it's quite a good learning tool as well because by having to recreate it, you have to put yourself in the footsteps of the designer who did it originally. So you learn tips and tricks, whether it's, you know, different effects to do or different compositional layouts or ways of doing things. So you can add all these things to your repertoire when you go on to do uh, your own logos to make them more interesting. There's, there's no shortage of examples on your website. And I know you said you have a particular fondness or at least uh, initially with the, the 90s version of Tomorrowland. Are, what were some of the distinct challenges you faced in 
Um, I, I think, for instance, of even just the restroom signs, um, which are just you know very niche compared to an attraction logo. Um, how uh, how do you uh, basically manage when you have a, a challenge? And as you said, not being able to have a you know high resolution image or or even being able to draw on the font exactly. How do you navigate those situations? I think sometimes you will sort of hit a dead end where nothing is available. You know, a certain aspect hasn't been captured. So you have to kind of fill it in with your imagination. And I guess as you carry on, you can think or make decisions that say, well, I don't know exactly how this would have looked, but I can make an educated guess based on everything else I've seen. And actually that kind of ties through to um, a project I did more recently where I was recreating the queue from the old animation tour because now we're talking about it, it feels like a natural extension of that because instead of just focusing on, you know, something that I had a fondness for in terms of like the signage and wanting to recreate that and preserve it, that's the same, but with a whole space. So um, I don't know if you've seen it, but I did a three recreation of kind of the old holding area where you'd queue through for the animation tour. And that was one of my early Blender projects so that just like the signs required going through tons of uh, vacation photos, YouTube videos, trying to find coverage of every corner of that building. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but they've got kind of a winding queue that goes through and multiple walls with concept art from classic Disney animated films. And one of the biggest projects was trying to find out which uh, concept art went on which wall. So sometimes I was looking at people's YouTube videos and I'd catch the reflection of one in the other, which would tell me that they were on opposing walls. And <laughs> it became like an obsessive uh, investigation to try and pin down where each one went. But, you know, managed to get there in the end and any gaps where I couldn't find it, I kind of filled in based on what would work for that space and what fits the style and what looks right. That's pretty impressive and and I think also illustrative of the world that we occupy, right, where we can draw on YouTube videos to find like these old home videos of, of people's experiences and in your case, like you said, even just capturing the reflection like that's, that's a really nuanced detail. Um, I, I couldn't imagine uh, engaging in something at such a, you know, such a fine level. <laughs> it's, it's tricky because a lot of the things that I find interesting are from this period of time where people had stopped using film cameras and hadn't gone to you know the digital mediums that were being uploaded everywhere so it was this middle point where you had very early digital cameras with very low resolution so so much stuff has kind of been lost or not accurately recorded because it's caught in this really annoying time period before we got into because nowadays it's fantastic because every single ride has a 4k video from multi-angles and high resolution photographs and every single detail. So my job would be an absolute dream in the future because there's so many resources now, but it's just things that have gone away a little bit too soon before they could be fully captured. I'm, I'm pretty incredulous um, in, in all the best ways of, of how accurate so many of these representations are. And, um, and even just going back to the digital signs for a second, like I, I feel like you'd be anybody would be hard pressed to think like this isn't the actual 
image that was used by Walt Disney Imagineering and the folks there because it is that precise. And I, I think of even um, one of them for Condor Flats, the area of California Adventure where Soren over California originated. And like looking at it in such a uh, focused manner as in looking at the image that you created, I never realized the nuance associated with the shadow of the airplane being an actual condor as in a California condor. And I think that comes through in, in looking very closely at your design. Oh, God. I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons I wanted to capture it because so much work went into these. So it'd be a shame if they just disappeared forever. And I think a lot of times the, these aren't the main focus of a trip when you go there, obviously, because you're there for the rides, you're there for the food, other things like that. They're in the background and you may not be paying full attention to them. But that's, that's why it's quite fun when you're recreating because you're forced to you know, stare at it for hours on end and go, oh, okay, there's a, there's a reflection there, there's a bevel there, there's this texture there, all these little details that were put in by the original artist that may have gone unnoticed if you're just walking past it. For sure. Well, can you talk, um, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier with, with, the, with the Q project, could you talk about using Blender and other tools to create these immersive environments? I think one that stands out and, and got a lot of attention was how you essentially created a 3D version of the scrapped plans for Tomorrowland 2055. So what was that uh, endeavor like for you? It was, it was probably one of the biggest projects I've ever done because, well, no client would want to spend that amount of time or money to create that. So it's quite fun to do it as a personal project. But Blender was great because I found, I've got so many ideas that I struggle to represent in 2D, whether it's, you know, an illustration or a painting or a sketch or things like that. And I had so many 3D ideas that I couldn't really express unless I got more cereal boxes and started cutting those out. But um, I heard about Blender and I started working through the tutorials and playing around with that. So the first thing I did was building up to the uh, animation queue. And then the culmination of that was this ambience video I put on YouTube where it's kind of like trying to recreate my childhood almost. So it's a night at the studios, the, the, you've got the whole place to yourself. It's got the warm glow of the lighting. You can hear the fireworks, you can hear the crickets, you can hear the announcements from the attraction opening. And it's it's kind of as close to time travel as I think you can get without a major scientific leap. And then after that, I was thinking, what did I want to do next? So instead of taking something that's extinct and recreating that, uh, I remembered reading about all these proposed plans for Tomorrowland uh, in Disneyland. And I thought it would be great to take these new skills and apply it to that. So Van Eaton Galleries had all these blueprints of Alien Encounter, which was one of my favorite rides, but the Disneyland version. And actually they got really far along with the development process. So there was a lot of material to draw on. So I thought that would be a really cool project. Um, so I started with the Alien Encounter building, trying to build that, comparing it to blueprints. And basically I had a top-down view and sort of a front on plain view and I had to try and reconcile those with these different huge cylindrical buildings how are they arranged you've got the people mover going through there you've got multi-levels all these things like that to try and contend with and the problem was once I started with that I thought well 
this has got a raised walkway, which goes off to Space Mountain. So I have to build Space Mountain. Then this one has a raised walkway, which goes off to Plek 2's fantastic intergalactic review, which means I have to build the Carousel of Progress building. And then I wanted a raised view. So I had to work out how high the people mover station would be so I can get the right height. And I thought you might as well build the people mover station too. So it rapidly spiraled out of control until I built basically one whole side of Tomorrowland. Um, but it was yeah, definitely a passion project. And then again, with this one, uh, it's got these very Art Deco bas-relief sculptures kind of detailed in the plans, but only some of them are visible in the plans and others are kind of alluded to. So I extrapolated from the mood and the feel of everything else and created them myself. And one of the things I thought would be quite fun is in the old pre-show video, they talk about these different product divisions that XS Tech has, like cryo-cybernetics and planetary restructuring. So I thought, ah, it'd be very Art Deco if they take those industries and then have them represented in the building uh, with these sort of big Art Deco, Greek, statuesque figures. I think that level of, of detail is pretty extraordinary and, and very cool and immersive and it comes through. And, you know, you're mentioning some of these like references to like fictional companies and organizations. And it makes me think similarly, uh, a different version of Tomorrowland, but the, the one that we see uh, currently um, in the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World and how you created almost like a an actual uh, urban transit map for the Tomorrowland Transit Authority and, and representing the different industries and, and uh, places that encompassed that, um, that really caught my eye as being uh, very reflective of even the designs that I would craft as a child imagining these different layouts. But again, you're, you're incorporating the Metropolis Science Center and all these different places that we would hear on the TTA and see referenced via an attraction like the Timekeeper and Again, you're bringing it to surface. You're allowing uh, people, even though that's a, a different, uh, perhaps not as immersive uh, representation as your Tomorrowland 2055, but showing kind of an overview of the land that we are all very familiar with. I think, well, it, it shows, I'm still obsessed with Tomorrowland 94, and I think you can make a pretty good drinking game from every time I mention it. But to me, that's such a fantastic example of what, place making could be because this entire land was fully realized as a city and it was believable so everything tied into the same narrative which rarely happens in a theme park because they're always even if you start with something that's them uh, thematically consistent over time you know you're adding in new rides and there's a sort of a tweak here and a compromise here and it dilutes the overall effect whereas because this was an overhaul of everything they got a chance to make everything pull in the same direction. So uh, from, you know, Alien Encounter uh, being set in the Science Center, uh, no wait, that's Timekeeper, sorry, but having a convention center and a Science Center, um, the, the people mover being this TTA and not only being a futuristic transport thing, you're on the blue line, which means there are other lines alluded to that make up this greater transportation system. Uh, and then the, the fact that there's so many references between things across the attractions that tie the whole land together. So in the Space Mountain queue, you'd see a 
commercial for excess tech, which is an alien encounter. You could go to the phone booth and you can hear a voicemail from Sunny Eclipse's agent, everything tied into each other and reinforced it. So it was such this perfect creation uh, that I always found it a source of inspiration, which is where this map came from. If it's a city, it needs a, you know, usually you'd have a subway map, but here's the CTA map. What you're describing there also makes me think of something perhaps more contemporary and familiar to mainstream audiences, which is the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the MCU, and how everything is tied together. And in a sense, Disney was articulating that via its Tomorrowland project. And as you illustrated, all those different connections across different entities. I think I hadn't thought about that, but that's definitely got a similar feeling to it in that you have all these different properties, but they're tied together and they reward people who pay attention, uh, whether it's, you know, in Tomorrowland, all these different company names that may be mentioned in different places, or, you know, in the MCU where it's characters you might recognize or mentions of things that sort of this light bulb moment. And you realize that they're all part of this grand schemes, grand plan, and it has all been very carefully thought out. For sure. As, as someone who is so intimately familiar with the parks and who really appreciates the history and um, evolution of attractions and spaces, are there any like any trends that you've noticed from just a design standpoint or even um, from even from the viewpoint of signage and, and how um, maybe that's changed over the years um, based on just past decades of Imagineering as, as someone who consumes this, are there particular trends or themes that you've noticed evolve over the years? I think obviously one of the big trends that was kicked off by the Wizarding World of Harry Potter are these single IP lands. So nowadays, you know, usually if there's a big development, it will be we're plonking in a whole Avatar land, a whole Toy Story land, a whole Galaxy's Edge rather than before where you'd have uh, a land that's brought together by under a single theme. So it could be adventure, but there could be multiple IPs, multiple stories happening under that umbrella. Whereas now, because of the success of that, and then later things like Cars Land, that seems to be the template that most places are pushing forward with because, you know, it's good synergy. You've got merchandising possibilities and things like that. And then in terms of graphic design, I think there's a lot more, I guess, backstory and character and aging going into a lot of the things that are going in today because things like Avatar, it's not just a sign in Pandora. It's got to have these layers of storytelling because it's either this... Uh, tour guide company it's a ghost sign from rda when they were there it's something that navi made so there could be so many layers within the same sign uh, whereas previously i think there was especially in the 80s and 90s it was a lot more in keeping with contemporary design trends of the time so just thinking of things like ones of life where the signs weren't necessarily there wasn't this grand backstory of Wonders of Life. It was kind of this uh, midway of life, they called it. So it kind of had this 
loose circus carnival theme, but with this very Memphis style to it. So it wasn't necessarily telling the story, but it looked attractive, it looked fun, it had bright colors, and it was uniform and cohesive within that pavilion. Yeah, I think that's a very fine example. That's one of my favorite uh, no longer existing spaces in really any of the Disney theme parks. And uh, and I, I remember I had communicated with you, one of my favorite uh, creations that I've seen you develop was actually a placement, like a, almost like a placemat of, um, of the wonders of life where it would be almost akin to something you would get going to a McDonald's or a restaurant where it, there would be games uh, accompanying artwork and in your case, really uh, reflecting the designs and characters associated with that pavilion. What was, uh, what, what kind of influenced you to uh, translate that into a very distinct type of almost like interactive artwork? I, I always describe it as a lot of my work will come from, is kind of exercising a demon out of my head, but in a good way. So I, I had a ton of appreciation and love for the Ones of Life Pavilion. And it just gets to the point where I've seen, you know, so many photographs, listen to the music, the rides and things like that. And then coupled with all my memories, I need to get it out somehow. And that usually manifests itself in some kind of project. So I thought if, if we're talking 80s and 90s, it would be really fun to do kind of a McDonald's, Burger King placemat, because it's such a fun place. There's lots of stuff to do. It felt like a good match. And then another thing I like to do is pick a theme or a time period or a style and try and recreate that as accurately as I could. So there was tons of research into, you know, the McDonald land play areas they used to have and contemporary graphic design and styles and any reference material I could get and then kind of distill it down into this to try and make it feel as authentic as possible. And I've even seen it pop up in a few places because people think it was actually something that was handed out in Wonders of Life, which is the biggest compliment. Uh, I, I absolutely love that. Uh, that level of authenticity, right? Because it looks so accurate, so much like it could exist as you make reference. And um, what I just love is that it, it wasn't just, you know, uh, translating the, the graphic design and style, but you, you came up with like little activities like a, a maze <laughs> and a crossword puzzle. <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah. Well, you've got to be authentic. Plus, it's these things don't feel like work to me. A lot of work goes into them, but I do it to amuse myself first and foremost. Um, and I, th I think people get that when they see my work. That there's always a fun skew to it. Uh, it'll always be something kind of fun, kind of wacky, kind of cartoony. Uh, more that than you know, doing a logo for an accountant practice or something like that. Sure. Well, it definitely resonates. Uh, one, one thing I'd like to touch on, um, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, is that your artwork has been featured on a bunch of different books. How did that come to fruition? Because that's a, a really unique way of, of transferring your talented artistry to something physical, something that people can own and hold. Yeah, I think the first one I did was for Aaron Wallace, for Hocus Pocus and Focus. And I th you've spoken to Aaron on this podcast, I think, yes. haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. He's a friend for sure and a very talented writer. Absolutely. So I think he uh, became aware of me through 
Twitter, I suppose, because you know I've done a lot of kind of attraction posters and things like that. So I think that's what he was looking for. And then, uh, like so much of the design thing, it comes down to word of mouth. So he kept asking me to help out with other covers he was doing. And then other authors, when they were looking for someone to do the front cover of their book, will contact me as well, which is fantastic, which is how I got to work with people like Christopher Ripley and Aaron H. Goldberg uh, and other people like that. And uh, yeah, Christopher E. Smith. But yeah, it was it's always fun to have a new medium to work in because the challenges are slightly different. You know, the logic uh, will be the same to a certain extent, but uh, it's, yes, it's a lot of fun to do. And it's very satisfying to have the book in your hand uh, to actually look at and it's partnered with the writing uh, inside. It's just, yeah, really satisfying. So if you could, uh, no pun intended, if you can kind of illustrate what this process <laughs> is like, is, is it often where the author is providing you with a basis or a vision for what they want or do you have a lot of creative freedom? How does that relationship look like? Because ultimately what I've been drawn by with, with these covers is how they're, they really capture the feel of the specific entity, whether it's you know Hocus Pocus or even Aaron's Epcot book, which I think is very striking. How, how does that look like for you in terms of when you're working with an author? I'm quite fortunate actually with the authors I've worked with because they give me a lot of freedom to just bring them ideas uh, because I think that's always the best way of doing things because sometimes a client will have such a strong image in their head that it kind of becomes a slog of just delivering what they want, whether or not that fits your style or you know your design principles or things like that. So for most of these, what will happen is I take the concept of their book and then I go away and do some research and I'll come back with maybe three routes for them to look at. So they'll all fit the theme, but take a slightly different angle. And then once I get that, I'll develop that into the final artwork, getting more and more uh, progressed along until it's uh, finished. But basically, like you said, I take each one and I really try and match the look to communicate what the book's about whether it's you know the mood the content maybe even like a time period uh like the one i just did for uh aaron goldberg buying disney's world that was very much supposed to be capturing the spirit of walt's epcot film and that optimism of the 60s and how everything's possible we're all gonna be living in air-conditioned domes there's gonna be no pollution every problem and crisis is going to be solved through technology so I really wanted this to have that optimism of Florida is the place that everything is going to happen and it's the same logic but for each book trying to bring as much emotion and tell the story just through the colors and the arrangement and the illustrations and everything I can put on there. Well, I think that that notion of being able to translate a specific time period to um, to our consciousness really came through with the buying Disney's World book, um, having looked at the cover. And um, I love the cleverness of like the, the Mickey-shaped lake that encompasses the middle of Florida, <laughs> among other details. But, just, but the styling, Rob, really, you mentioned trying to just get the feeling like it, it really seems like it could have come straight out of 
the you know the the Walt film from the 1966. It it has the the tone just feels totally right in terms of the shading, um, certainly the the font as well. Um, I, I and and in a different sense the Christopher's uh, book that uh, we just talked about on the podcast a few months ago that totally feels like it's out of the 70s with that <laughs> multiple layered uh, colored font. It's really cool. That was really fun because I feel like the 70s don't get a lot of credit, especially when it comes to Disney parks, because I, don't know, I guess because Disneyland broke the mold so much, so much of what you see, whether it's official or fan art, will be centered around uh, the mid-century style, which I absolutely adore and it's fantastic, but it's always great to sort of try and do something different and unexpected and because this is celebrating 50 years of Walt Disney World it made sense to do something around the 70s so that was fun to try and uh, you know make it look Disney obviously not copyrights infringement levels of Disney but still capture that spirit and that time period. Yeah, you got it. And I guess I'm wondering, um, in light of the number of projects that you have on your plate, both for your own pleasure and also um, at times these uh, the con contractual projects and where you're you're supporting um, an author's work or, or other individuals, other organizations, could you talk about how, at least in terms of, uh, for instance, like the logos and and these um, these really cool pieces of artwork, how you eventually have made a business out of it. Um, your, your work is featured on Society6. People can purchase um, everything, like I said, from t-shirts to, um, to artwork they can hang on their walls featuring your creations. How did that come about? Well, originally all, all my design stuff was kind of a, a side project to whatever my real job was uh, because I was never getting enough to live off of. So it was kind of, kind of a hobby that was monetized and meanwhile my job was mostly graphic design rarely fun stuff so I was doing my, my one of my first jobs was for a supermarket website so I'd have to do web banners in every size you can imagine for things like pressure washers and washing machines and air dryers and things like that so there wasn't a ton of creativity uh, so this was something I did in my free time partially to sort of satisfy that creative urge and partially to make some extra money. And this continued. And a few years ago, we moved, which gave me opportunity to uh, go freelance full time. And that was an interesting transition because to start with, when I was still getting established, uh, I was signed up with a load of uh, design uh, kind of recruiters who'd send me out on placement. So to start with, I would just take anything and I'd end up in offices doing PowerPoint presentations about uh, companies that sold sanitary products and then plumbing catalogs, anything like that. But then over time, I found clients that I was more attuned with who were doing work closer to what I wanted to do. And then I also had clients who found me through word of mouth. And eventually it was just trying to make that pie chart of my finances the part that is things that are fulfilling to me, things that are in my style, things that are in my philosophy, make that a bigger and bigger proportion of that pie chart and get rid of those you know, PowerPoint presentations and catalogs and things that I can do, but don't really give me a lot of fulfillment. And now I'm a lot happier with the balance of what I'm doing. And I feel like I've got 
some wonderful clients who enjoy my style. We've got good partnerships going on. Well, it's it's very clear that there's uh, no shortage of, of pieces that exist out there that that showcase your work. Have you had any, uh, maybe it's like picking a favorite child, but do you have any favorite designs that you've crafted perhaps in the past year? Um, I think I was really proud of the tip top club concept I did because it was an idea that was rattling around my head for a while and that led to doing things like concept art overview of the whole place and then signs and tiki mugs and what the back bar would look like and I was really happy with how that all came out. Yeah, it's very, very evocative. Um, and I loved when I was uh, reviewing your website and, um, you know, clicking it and essentially um, it's, you have both like a day version and a night version that um, illustrates just the, the mood. It's, it's very cool. I, I quite thought it was uh, very, just very beautiful. Thank you. Yes, like it was, a, it was an idea I've had for a while. So it was quite fun to actually take the time to try and realize it and think about all the ins and outs of it to make it as full as possible and then uh, another thing I quite liked was it was the 20th anniversary of Disney's California Adventure which uh, I'm still obsessed with that park partially because I've got a thing for the unloved Disney attractions or the uh, less loved ones so it was quite nice that on Twitter with some of the artists I know, it became this event where this deadline was approaching. We all knew it was coming and it was kind of expected that everyone was going to create some tribute artwork to it. Um, except it was getting closer and closer and my mind was a blank, even though I've got a huge uh, admiration and love and nostalgia for the original 1.0 version of that park. I was really struggling to get an idea onto paper. And luckily at the last minute, something clicked into place and I was able to come up with an idea. And I did these six posters for each of the original lands. And I got to do it in sort of a really crazy, irreverent 90s overprint style. So I was really proud with how this turned out, even though it was a bit of a race to the finish line to get them all done in time. Yeah, that's really neat. I. I was a fan of, even though certain elements of the park certainly weren't quite as strong as what they are today, I love some of the original elements. Like, you, you remember the Golden Dreams uh, show with Whoopi Goldberg? Yes, I thought that was absolutely fantastic. And I learned so much about California history just through that. But unfortunately, it got done in because it's a show in a park that caters mostly to locals. So once you've seen it, you're probably not going to go see it a second time, uh, which was a real shame because it was fantastic. Well, Rob, if you want to kind of dive into some different avenues with your creativity, maybe you could develop like a 10 foot uh, tall version of Calafia. Would that be in your wheelhouse? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I'd have to uh, really refine my blender sculpting tools to uh, do Whoopi Goldberg justice. But yeah, that could be a fun project next. Hey, I think, you know, there are a lot of really cool... Uh, versions of, of figures um, in that in that attraction in the film. So just food for food for thought. Um, uh, yeah, I just I, I'm just blown away by just the, the variety of different topics that you've you've covered. Are there and maybe this would be a, a tease of some sort, but are there any like 
aspects of Disney parks that you have really yet to explore in your artwork that you're hoping to translate um, into reality over the coming years? Um, one thing I've been uh, thinking about a lot is Dinoland USA. Again, in my wheelhouse of things that are less loved, uh, perhaps fairly, perhaps unfairly. And uh, thinking about some kind of project about how I'd replace Chester and Hester's Dinorama. Because I think, you know, even if you can get people to the place where they like the uh, uh, countdown to extinction side of things and the restaurant restaurantsaurus side of the land, fair enough, it is a fairground to Chester and Hester's. So I'm currently trying to think of the best way of kind of putting on my imaginary hat and thinking how I would fix that in a way that fits the theme of the rest of the land and tells the story in a way that does adhere to theme design principles and people would accept over what's currently there. Very nice. Yeah, I wonder too, there could also even be an element of, uh, since there's now that uh, aspect of, Don of Donald Duck realizing that dinosaurs are the ancestors <laughs> and a blend of that, I don't know. <laughs> Possibly, possibly, yes. Very cool. Are there um, are there specific projects that you can uh, talk about with uh, listeners that's um, on your docket that you're super excited about? You mentioned um, the notion of perhaps exploring Dialand further, but anything else in the works for you? Unfortunately, that I did have a couple of really big, really exciting projects that were kind of put on hold because of COVID. And one of them, I can't really say too much, but it was a water park, which it would have been an absolutely fantastic project. And fingers crossed, it can survive lockdown and the economic dip and you can get uh, back on track with that because it would, yeah, like I say, it would be absolutely fantastic and a chance to sort of apply what I think theme design should be and how it should be done but to a real environment where people can go experience it, not just on YouTube. For sure. Thinking about all of that you've done over the years, is there a specific memory or experience that you've had where you've realized the impact of the, of the work you've created and how it's perhaps connected with fellow Disney theme park fans and uh, aficionados? I think one of the first things I did that got me involved with the Diz Twitter community was I did uh, a tribute poster to Maelstrom just as that attraction was closing and that was the first time anything of mine had got shared like that so that absolutely blew me away at the time uh, to see people appreciate my artwork and being able to find these kindred spirits who had as much appreciation for this attraction as I did. So that was probably the first time I'd felt that way. And then probably more recently, um, over lockdown, I ran a, a competition called Armchair Imagineering, where I'd set a sort of a themed design brief, whether it's a food stall or an attraction or a thing like that. And the responses we got to that just blew me away because I didn't know if anyone was going to even enter, uh, but it built into this fantastic community where people were putting their all into these and they had so much 
talent, so many amazing ideas, so many really clever ideas that were filling the brief in a really unexpected way. Uh, and people telling me even now, like I've someone buying something from my store or someone who's now a client telling me how much they enjoyed either watching it or participating, which just feels unreal. It definitely warms my heart that. Very cool. Well, yeah, the reach of, of your work and, and involvement has definitely been uh, quite explicit. And um, and yeah, I'm as I've shared, I, I find it quite cool to be able to, for someone to preserve an aspect of the parks or, or really help enable others to find their own connections via these creative exercises of sorts. So, um, so really appreciate that you're playing a key role in that effort. Oh, no problem feel like uh, I need to start making even more uh, these uh, digital signs now. And uh, with the changes happening in the parks, there's even more to draw from. So I've got quite a big list ahead of me, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think if you want to leverage the notion of DCA 1.0, I know you have Condor <laughs> Flats and some of those others, but there's no shortage of uh, uh, fun wordplay, as you as you probably recall, with some of the, the stores and, and dining locations of DCA's past. Yeah, if Disneyland was the happiest place on earth, DCA 1.0 was the punniest place on earth. And uh, it's fantastic. You got it. Well, let's uh, let's wrap up, Rob, uh, with some different uh, Disney opinion-related questions that I ask of my guests. We'll start with uh, several music-related questions. Okay. Is, there, is there a Disney soundtrack that you listened to most while growing up? Uh, I have to say The Emperor's New Groove. Uh, because I I was obsessed with that film when it came out. I can't remember how many times I saw it at the cinema in that summer, but that soundtrack got a lot of play uh, in my house. And uh, the fact you got to interview John Debney about it blew my mind. But uh, Turn Out the Light by performed by Yzma, uh, Run Llama Run, all of these, uh, they're still etched in the back of my brain to this day. Well, I, I would say it's a favorite of mine as well. I, I think if you could create a Cusco themed land, uh, that'd be really cool. I noticed on your website that there was like a Kronk's Kitchen logo. <laughs> Is that right? I thought I saw that, right? Yes, there was Kronk's Kitchen and I did a menu for that. <laughs> and uh, also one of the commissions I've had recently for uh, uh, Dark Kingdom had uh, Yzma's Empire land. So it was a whole Emperor's New Groove themed area. So I mean, it could still happen. It could still happen. Hey, we need to, we all need to board the coaster, right? The you know, that <laughs> Yzma and Kronk go on. So it's a no brainer. I mean, just get it built. Exactly. Um, so your next music question is what Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Uh, most recent Disney song. Uh, it's probably, I don't know. Is it, is it lame if I say, let it go? Because no, <laughs> I know, I know that came out a few, fair few years ago now, but that's, uh, still swimming around my brain. I still think it has a fantastic soundtrack oh actually no sorry i have an even more recent one i'd like to amend my answer to and that's agatha all along because technically that's part of disney now um that has been driving me demented ever since i heard it it is truly genius i love that song 
Oh yeah, very campy as well. Uh, <laughs> what Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music? Underrated music. Um, that's a tricky one. See, I don't know what's underrated. Maybe not celebrated enough. Um, probably maybe Finding Nemo. I don't know if that's considered underrated, but I don't necessarily see people talking about it all the time. But I think uh, that was Thomas Newton, I believe. I may be yeah, wrong. Thomas Newman. 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 Yeah, yeah Sorry, I was, I was got most letters right in that. But I think that was such a beautiful score. And not only does it work all the way through the film and hitting all those beats and getting you to buy into that emotional journey, even though it's cartoon talking fish, but it's also in all its applications through the theme parks, uh, especially like the seas with Nemo and the submarine voyage, that music works so well when you're in that physical environment and not just watching it on a screen. So that one means a lot to me. Uh, whether it's underrated, I don't know. That's probably up for debate. We'd probably say so. Uh, you know, there aren't any songs from it, but that score is is very stirring. And yeah, there's been application in the parks like you've discussed. But yeah, I wouldn't say people talk about how how lush it is. Um, that's a good one. Um, a couple of book questions for you, Rob. Is there a recent Disney book that you've read? Um, what? Well, I mean, I'm kind of biased, but one of the most recent ones I read was the one I did the cover for, buying Disney's World. And like, like I said, I might be slightly biased because I did the cover for it, but I was, I was genuinely enthralled with it. And I was telling Aaron that this needs to be optioned into a movie because even though it sounds like it's, it could potentially be a dry story because it's about how they bought up the land to build Walt Disney World and it all had to be done in a very clandestine way. The way it's told, it was evoking, I was thinking, Catch Me If You Can meets Better Call Saul meets all these different movies. And I could genuinely see a really compelling heist kind of Ocean's Eleven movie about all these guys scrambling to secretly buy up this enormous portion of land from all these really obscure vendors. Um, so I really enjoyed reading that. And uh, yeah, please make it into a film. Well, we'll make sure uh, we get someone from the Walt Disney Studios online to, <laughs> to make that happen. Why not? They did Saving Mr. Banks, so they can tell their own story, right? So Saving Mr. Banks too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll see if Emma Thompson uh, would like to participate in that as an older P.L. Travers. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, basically her her story of watching disney world being built from the uk right just just her her impressions of that because that's just a, a few years later right so yeah absolutely i think it'd be a very bold choice to have a uh, narrator who has nothing to do with <laughs> the action that's taking place but you know emma thompson how can you turn that down hey hey she's going to be in cruella so i think you know there's that disney affiliation that's strong right so. right makes sense <laughs> I love that we were just creating a whole uh, plot of that. Um, well, we'll make sure we're credited. Uh, so next question for you, Rob, if you could write a Disney book on any topic, what would it be about? Oh, um, <sighs> I'm just gonna say uh, Tomorrowland 94. Like, I feel like 
there is so much accumulated years and years and years of articles and details and graphic design all stuck in the back of my brain. I feel like I could spit that into a pretty good book and finally get this land the attention and recognition that it should have had all along, even though it's slightly too late now, but hey-ho. I think that would be cool. You just need to make sure that chapter nine is all dedicated to nine I. Of course, that that, symbolism, right? That's a given. (laughs) Um, So your last question is a random question in that it's distinct uh, just for you. So what's your favorite piece of concept artwork of an attraction area or park that never came to be? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, Probably back when Discovery Mountain in Paris was going to be a whole indoor Jules Verne themed land with kind of Tower of Terror, uh, Drop Ride, uh, the Nautilus restaurant, uh, as well as Space Mountain inside. I think I think that was Tim Delaney, but I, I love his artwork so much. It conveys so much mood and the colors for it are, they're always phenomenal in everything he's done. But that has always stuck in my head as something that would have been an incredible environment to have were there a bit more money to play around with. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I recall his artwork being very striking. So Rob, how can listeners make sure to follow your work, follow you on social media and, uh, and be connected? Uh, well, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. And my handle is Rob J. Yo, and my website is robyodesign.com. And from there, there's links to my stores on Society6 and Etsy, where you can buy, I always call it very uh, esoteric Disney adjacent artwork on pins and bookmarks and other things like that so yeah check it out very cool rob it's been an absolute pleasure really enjoyed having you on and much continued success oh thank you so much brett it was a pleasure and thanks again to rob for joining me on notably disney it was a blast to talk about his career learn more about the development of these particular pieces and if you want to see it for yourself I would encourage you to check out his website, which is robyodesign.com. That's R-O-B-Y-E-O-D-E-S-I-G-N.com. You can also purchase products that feature his artwork on sites including Society6 and Etsy. And it was a real pleasure talking with him. Hope you enjoyed. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett. And thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. 
The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.